The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, gentlemen. It's good to see you all uh, here this evening, and thank you very much, Pastor Andy and uh, the pastoral team, for the invitation to participate in this conference with you. I do consider it a privilege and honor to be here and to have this uh, opportunity to spend these sort of 48 hours or so with you. I hope you feel the same way by the end uh, as you do perhaps at the beginning. The hardest thing about doing this sort of thing is living up to your introduction, um, and uh, that was a very warm and generous one. Thank you, Andy. The uh, title of our time together generically is is biblical manhood. I want to give you a subtitle for that, really, which is men for the hour. That's what I really want to speak about this weekend, being men for the hour. And I'm going to give four addresses. Uh, The first one, uh, men and our moment. That's this evening, men and our moment. And then tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about men, Christ, and the church. And then, uh, well, maybe I, sh- I should keep some of it in, uh, in stock for tomorrow, but we'll be dealing with the church uh, tomorrow, our relationship with the church. We're going to be dealing with men and our idols, and men and our orders. So those will be our four uh, addresses. Men and our idols, men and our orders will be the last two. So that's where we're going uh, this weekend. Now, the Scripture says that in understanding, we are to be men. In understanding, be men. So my intention is to try and stretch you a little bit this weekend, stretch our understanding in order that we can be the men that God wants us to be in our moment. Most men's events, generally speaking, and men's conferences have a tendency to focus on what I would call spectacle, testicle, wallet, and watch, which are the sort of four critical uh, men's issues, uh, where we, what we do with our eyes, what we do with our manhood, uh, what we do with our money, what we do with our time. And these are all important things, but we can get so uh, buried in the woods that we miss the trees. And I really want to talk about the trees uh, this weekend, the forest, not just about uh, uh, how we can be more self-disciplined and so on and so forth. Those are all important. I think something more significant, more important that will enable us to live as men in our culture. So men and our moment. Turn with me, if you will, if you've got a Bible, to Psalm 72. I think next year is the 150th anniversary of the Canadian Dominion. And uh, Psalm 72 was important to the founding of Canada. Mr. Tilly took Psalm 72, verse 8, as the founding verse of the Canadian Dominion. Psalm 72, and I want to read verses 1 through 14. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He shall judge your people with righteousness and your poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy. He shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days, these are the days of the Messiah King, the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow down before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. 
The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he cries, and the poor also, and him that has no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall be their blood be in his sight. There are numerous psalms, what we would call messianic psalms, about the man Jesus Christ. And if we want to know what uh, manhood is really all about, of course, we need to look at King Jesus, who was the model man. And this psalm tells us something about the age or the days of the Messiah, which were inaugurated when Christ Jesus was born, King of kings and Lord of lords. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. So where do you and I fit in to all of this? What does it really mean to be a man in our time? Well, in order to answer that uh, question, we have to know something about our time, first of all. We have to understand something about the age in which we live. What is the mission of Christ in history? Because His mission is our mission. What is God's mission in history? Christ is the model man. We are being conformed to the image of His Son. And as I'm going to show you this evening, we are the new humanity in Jesus Christ. What is His mission in history? Scripture says that without a vision, the people perish. But blessed is He who keeps the law. Now, without a vision and a mission for the Christian life as men, our Christian life becomes empty, routine, uh, mere repetition, dull, lifeless, and in a sense, we get to the point where we feel that the Christian life is little more than weekly attendance at a church where mainly women worship. Uh, We go for the sake of the children and where we're going to be told to be nice to our wife, be nice to our kids, try and be polite at work, and, you know, don't overclaim on our expense account. And is that really the end of what it means to be a Christian? The political philosopher and former president of the Italian Senate, Marcello Perra, has said this about our time. He says, the apostasy of Christianity is exposing the entire West to the risk of a grave cultural and political crisis, and perhaps even to a collapse of civilization. Perhaps even to a collapse of civilization. Now, it only takes a generation to make a barbarian. One generation. A generation of people outside civilization. The word barbarian literally means rootless one. Rootless one. And we're living in a time of perhaps unprecedented for 1,500 years rootlessness. We have a battle royal on our hands right now. Men are supposed to be up for a fight, a cause a battle. Well, we're part of a kingdom who has a king, and he says there's a war on. Some of us are uh, still uh, licking our wounds in the military hospital, haven't made it onto the battlefield yet. There is actually a battle on, and this is not just some evangelical platitude. This is what is being said by cultural critics, cultural analysts today who are not even Christian, That we are staring down the barrel in our time as men of a cultural crisis that could very well lead to the collapse of of civilization as we have known it. There is today a grave threat to religious liberty, 
the rule of law, the freedom of the church, the survival of the family. And it is engendered by a growing, elitist, statist, pagan vision of the social order that is permeating every aspect of our culture, which basically says men are basically useless. Men are not, to be, are not heads of their families. They're not to rule in their, over the lives of their children. They're not to discipline their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There is a redefinition of family. There is a redefinition of uh, fatherhood. Did you know, I just learned this last week, I was speaking in London, in England, for a few days at a conference there. And I heard one of the speakers refer to a statistic in the United Kingdom. I don't know what the stats are here, but I suspect they are very similar. That a man in the life of the family is so significant in the lives of his children that if he does not attend worship in the house of God, if he does not attend church, only one in 50 of the children of such men will set foot in the church in their teens and twenties. One in fifty. Their mother may be devout. She may spend three parts of the week in church. It's totally irrelevant to the outcome in boys and girls in the family. The impact that we have on those around us, our wives, our children, our neighbors, our colleagues, is perhaps far greater than we fully appreciate. The disappearance of men from the life of the church has been leading now for about 70 years to a collapse of our civilization. On average, there are three to one women in, to, over to, to, to men in church. We have in our time abortion on demand the growing demand for infanticide, as well as the practice of infanticide. The Supreme Court recently unanimously ruled against freedom of speech on matters of sexuality. There's been a redefinition of marriage in the family. I hope you weren't sleeping through that one. There is a transgender bill that's been through its readings in the Houses of Parliament and is next to be set before the Senate, who is likely to approve this bill, that will enshrine in law in this country the idea that gender is a social construct, and that if I self-identify as a woman, I have to be treated as such, so that I can go and use women's washrooms, women's gymnasium, women, whatever, showers, and I'm legally protected to do so as a man if I self-identify as a woman. That will complete, essentially, a total pagan legal revolution in this country, destroying every basic concept of family and gender that we have known in terms of an idealized notion of androgyny. Education has been completely taken over by paganism today by cultural Marxists. The Toronto District School Board has referred to parents in their official material, their role in the lives of children as providing a poisoned environment where it doesn't confirm and conform to the standards of the new queering of culture, where there are somewhere between 7 to 14 gender identities. Parents are not permitted to withdraw their children from objectionable classes in Toronto. We have a lesbian premier who rules over us. Does any of this irritate you or is it just me? Who is insistent on the reintroduction? First promise she made to a major gay periodical was to reintroduce her radical sex ed curriculum into all schools across Ontario. We have the University of Toronto hosting orgies 
Student groups, official student groups on campus earlier this year hosted an orgy. You try and go and preach the gospel, though, or speak to these gender issues in a university campus today. I've been there. I've been involved in it. I've tried it. You see what comes down on you. Ontario Institute Studies in Education, the OISE, which tips out the teachers who train our young ones, is a sink of communist, Marxist, anti-Western ideology in which it is taught that 9-11 was a government conspiracy among Western governments. The education minister of the Yukon has now formally forbidden Catholic schools to teach Christian views about sexuality. And Quebec's Supreme Court has denied the right of Catholic parents to guide the education of their children. Some of you must have children in school, must have grown children, must have grandchildren. Ever wondered why some of your children or grandchildren are alienated from you in the faith? We are facing a massive and unpayable debt load in the West. Economic meltdown. Our markets are tottering. Oh, and there's a very large adjustment coming. We can be sure of that. Our welfare economies are collapsing across Europe. Our militaries are being downsized. We are facing demographic, demographic decline and crisis on a massive scale. That is, fertility rates. I'm just giving you a quick synopsis of where we are right now. I could talk about this for hours. This is just a 10-minute intro. We're facing a demographic crisis, which means, in English, that our fertility rates in most of the West today are not even replacing the existing population. In places like Germany, for example, the birth rate is 1.0. No civilization has ever survived collapses in birth rates like that. Do you think you're going to have a pension when you retire? You're not going to get a state pension, that's for sure. Certainly not the Europeans who think they're going to get one. There isn't going to be any money because there's nobody to pay the taxes. There aren't any children. We're closing schools across Ontario. Why is that? Well, we've murdered millions of babies. And we condemn and have basically spoken against in our culture the family. You look at the popular shows on television and search in vain for a robust, decent model of a father. Men are just the butt of jokes, living with their gay friend. Shows like Modern Family. This is the diet upon which our younger generation in particular live and watch and learn by osmosis what the culture said. It shapes the culture in which we live. We have the rise of an opportunistic Islam, which smells death on the West. Millions of Muslims living in Europe. Many, many Muslims living in North America. I don't have a problem with Muslims living in the country if we're evangelizing them. And as long as we're not telling them they can build their Sharia uh, courts, as we've done in Britain, and establish their madrasas, and demolish our churches and establish mosques, they smell death on the Western culture and world, and they have eight children each. You have to be a mathematician to work out what's going to happen in 50 years. And most of this is in the context where a church is largely sleeping, waiting for the second coming. Because you don't polish brass on a sinking ship after all. What's the point? And so many people are just saying, well, you know, it's getting bad, but hey, the hammer probably won't fall while I'm still alive. Maybe some of us who are older are saying that. You know, I, my life's been okay, not too bad. And we're actually not as concerned as we should be for our children and our children's children. And others of us are thinking about eschatologies of retreat and escape from the world rather than 
the redemption of it. We are actually facing a time which many social commentators would agree is quite literally unprecedented in 15, 1600 years. It's happening on our watch. Now, the Bible makes abundantly clear that because we are fallen and, simple and sinful people, if we do not have a mission and vision and purpose directing our lives, anarchy and death ensue, and that's what's happening within our culture right now. There's no vision and mission of, of life and godliness being set before our generation. It's total nihilism. We have to recover a prophetic vision of God's Word for our lives as men as we lead our families and in our churches and start to live in terms of it. And one of the places we can start, where do we begin, is by looking to the past. Because <clears throat> over and against popular wisdom, wisdom was not born with us. In fact, if you look at the mess we've made, Clearly, we've got a few lessons to learn. So we have fathers in the faith from whom we need to look and whom we need to learn from if we're going to understand how we can live and act as men in our time. Because for many of our Christian forefathers, and I'm here with my dad today, he'll be here with us for the weekend, and my associate, the chairman of our board for the EICC, Randy Curry. For many of our Christian forebears, the reformation of life and culture were deeply rooted in their consciousness as Christians. They didn't believe that the Christian faith was glorified fire insurance, a sort of really good policy that you, it's important that you take out, and then you live pretty much as you see fit. Attend church, be nice. The ramifications of what Scripture had to say for them about faith and grace were far-reaching. Listen to what Charles Hodge, one of the great Reformed scholars at Princeton in the 19th century, had to say about the Christian life. Listen to this. It is our duty, as far as lies in our power, immediately to organize human society and all its institutions and organs upon a distinctively Christian basis. Indifference or impartiality here between the law of the kingdom and the law of the world or of its prince, the devil, is utter treason to the king of righteousness. The Bible, the great statute book of the kingdom, explicitly lays down principles which, when candidly applied, will regulate the action of every human being in all relations. There can be no compromise. The king said, with regard to all descriptions of moral agents in all spheres of activity, he that is not with me is against me. If the national life in general is organized upon non-Christian principles, the churches which are embraced within the universal assimilating power of that nation will not long be able to preserve their integrity. Well, he was absolutely right. That's a prophetic statement. The first task of men in the life of the church is to apply the material authority of God's Word to every aspect of our lives. It's not enough to say we believe in the authority of Scripture, that we believe in an infallible Bible, that we uh, hold to, you know, the, the, the inerrancy of Scripture. We have to apply it. If we think it's inerrant and it's the Word of God in all it teaches, we have to take hold of God's statute book for life and apply it to every aspect of our lives. If we want to be men, even approaching the kind of men that built the Canadian Dominion and established America. These weren't limp-wristed, pious, anti-sex, weak chaps who, this picture of the Puritans singing hymns in the wilderness, they built the United States. 
The Canadian Dominion wasn't established by a weak-kneed bunch of barbarians who are 37 years of age just sitting in their mum's basement playing Wii in their boxer shorts. Don't even have a job. And this is very much where we are today. Churches filled with women who can't find a husband who can get out of bed in the morning. Martin Luther once said this. No greater mischief, that's the great reformer, Martin Luther. That's why you're here today, by the way. Our fathers in the faith. Martin Luther, a German Augustinian monk who in the 15th century says something wrong with the church. What am I going to do about it? Turn over and go back to sleep. No, he went and nailed up his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door And that's why First Baptist Church is here today. Because a man had the courage to do something about the decadence and collapse of his own culture. He said this, No greater mischief can happen to a Christian people than to have God's Word taken away from them or falsified so that they no longer have it pure and clear. God grant that we and our descendants be not witnesses of such a calamity. And yet, every other Tuesday I end up debating on 6.40 a.m. on the culture wars on the radio with a so-called minister of the gospel, a woman who doesn't even believe in God pastors a church in Toronto. There can be no doubt that in our time, we are witnesses to this calamity. In our families, how many of us are catechizing, training our children? How many of our children know Christian doctrine, know what the Ten Commandments are, know what the Sermon on the Mount is all about? Know the Lord's Prayer. No, I'm not laying a guilt trip on any of you. I'm just kicking you up the pants on a Friday night. Because I have to, I've got three children. I have to take these things seriously. I'm in the middle of building a Christian school in Toronto. I'm not preaching uh, out of idleness something that I'm not trying to apply in my own life. Our families, our schools, our courts, and I work with Christian lawyers a lot in this country. Our corridors of power, even in our churches, are subject to the calamity of the removal of the Word of God. That's why our culture is where it is today. God's looking for men who will stand in the gap. Luther's calamity is the worst that can befall Christians, and it is upon us, friends. Commensurate then with the disappearance of the Word of God from all of these different spheres is the cultural decay that's advanced to such a degree that there are leading commentators, even politicians, even atheistic intellectuals who are saying things like this. For example, Dr. Samuel Gregg has noted about Europe in particular, he says, it makes it even more ironic that increasing numbers of secular European thinkers believe Europe can only reinvigorate its distinct identity and values through re-engaging its Judeo-Christian heritage. This is certainly the conclusion of one of Germany's most prominent intellectuals, Jürgen Habermas. A self-described methodological atheist, Habermas has insisted for some time that Europe no longer has the luxury of wallowing in historical denial. As Habermas wrote in his 2006 book, A Time of Transitions, Christianity and nothing else is the ultimate foundation of liberty, conscience, rights, and democracy, the benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other options. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is postmodern chatter, end quote. So we have a situation where we have secular 
atheistic thinkers looking to the church and saying, if we do not recover what you have or are supposed to have, we're done. Our economies will not recover, by the way, by some magic bullet of the tech industry or some new natural resource. The problem with our markets is dishonesty. You can't have a free market where people don't tell the truth. The free market is predicated upon truthfulness and trustworthiness. Even the Prime Minister of Hungary recently has said that Europe's economy cannot recover until it recovers its Christianity. And yet, there are many in the church today who do not understand this. Don't accept it. Don't even think about it. It is not historical accident that modern Western history's worst tyrants have been those who have hated the Word of God and vilified the law of God. Not only so, but some of the most influential intellectuals who have shaped the thinking of our time have been those who have vilified and hated the Word and law of God. There were pagans, perhaps one of the most influential pagans of the last century was Carl Jung with his transpersonal psychological pseudo-scientific theories, which has led us into this gender confusion of our time. He was an occultist, hated God, hated Christianity, hated Scripture. He was profoundly influenced by Sigmund Freud. Freud ended his life writing a book, spitting out venom against the law of God, ejecting law and crime from the universe, and reinventing Moses as a pagan Egyptian in his book, Moses and Monotheism. And yet many people today, even in the churches, really look to therapy to solve their problems. We have a therapeutic culture and largely therapeutic churches. We don't speak nowadays very much in terms of sin, righteousness, and judgment covenant blessing and cursing, we speak therapeutically. The National Socialist Adolf Hitler, the 20th century's most famous tyrant, said this, history will recognize our movement as the great battle for humanity's liberation, a liberation from the curse of Mount Sinai. Now, our culture is swiftly manifesting a like hatred for God's Word and God's law. It's trying to remove it from every possible public space. And if they could, they'd take it out of your pulpit. Removed from the courts, every crown court used to hang the Ten Commandments. The Supreme Court of the United States has Moses and the Ten Commandments carved into the side of the wall. The Peace Tower in Ottawa has Scripture all over it. People don't want reference to these things anymore. How is that relevant to us? Well, let me give you a truism to write down. As goes the church, so goes the world. As goes the church, so goes the world. The church is salt and light. Are we not? Isn't that what Jesus called us to be? A preservative and a light. And if we cease to be what we are called to be, the world, how can the world be expected to be any different? Our crisis can be traced to the private and public loss of the law word of God and the severing of the connection between Scripture and every area of life. Let me unpack that for you just a little bit for the next few minutes. In God's Word, God forbids any inclination to break up your life into two parts. One part for yourself and the other bit for God. You cannot get such a view of the Christian life out of Scripture. 
The, one of the great forefathers in Europe of the Christian faith, a man who, well, actually, interestingly enough, was prayed for by a group of ladies that he would understand the gospel and start to apply it. Oh, he had his education, but he didn't really understand. He didn't know God and apply God's Word. They prayed for him, and he did start to apply it, and he became eventually the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. His name was Abram Kuyper. Little more than a century ago, and what he said this means in practice is very interesting. Kuyper believed this, Christians must serve God within the world and not flee into seclusion as monks and some Anabaptists have done. When Christians obtain positions, he says, of civil authority, they must operate in obedience to God since the Lord has ordained their authority, Romans 13. This, Kuiper argued, means that civil government, he says, must restrain blasphemy where it assumes the character of an affront to the divine majesty. The constitution, he says, of the state should acknowledge God as supreme ruler. The government should set aside its regular activities on a Sunday and protect it as a day of worship. Magistrates should regard themselves as responsible to God in the discharge of their duties. They should punish public attacks upon God as crimes against civil law, which acknowledges God as the source of the state's authority. Now, those words would strike most Christians today as ridiculous. And yet, I was a boy when they were repealing Sabbath laws. I remember it in England. Most of our lawmaking today is an indirect interaction with biblical law, which was enshrined in common law in this country. We just spent the last 50 years repealing it, one piece after another. Kuiper is unknown to many modern Christians, and worse, many find it difficult to identify with the God of whom he speaks whose faith is integrated into every single detail of his private and public life. A faith that is supposed to shape the essence of who we are and all that we do in God-ordained time. And because we have increasingly done what Kuiper decries, we've separated life into two parts. We say, is the secular and the sacred? We've got the personal and the public, the spiritual and the material. One part is for God, the other part for ourselves. Two stories, if you will, of existence. Two levels of existing as Christians. And what this has meant is that we tolerate sin in the lower story. Moral relativism relativism gets tolerated in the church in the, the lower story of existence. Because the Christian life is about spiritual things and a spiritual kingdom and spiritual realities and my personal piety. An alleged sphere that often is outside of God then is this lower sphere, allegedly. But such a view is a complete denial of the Bible where God, by right of creation, legislates for all men in everything. And for Christians, doubly so, because He is not only owns us by right of creation, but by right of redemption. You are not your own, you're bought with a price. Such a view then, if we divide up life, denies the biblical teaching. We have, in a sense, a severing of contemporary Christianity in the West from its biblical roots. And various dualisms, these separations into two parts, have left very confused believers often seeking an escape from the world, that is, this lower story of existence that we allegedly live in, into another higher spiritual realm as quickly as possible, where things really matter. But is that the biblical teaching? How did Jesus teach you and I to pray? Don't forget, it wasn't Jesus' prayer. It was the prayer that He taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. In his very important study of the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, Professor Marvin Wilson puts, points out the important fact 
that our time and life abandoning tendency is actually the product of Greek philosophy, even if we don't even realize it, not the Bible. Consider, for example, that the first thing God sanctifies in Scripture isn't a time, it's not a place. I beg your pardon, it's not a place or a thing. God doesn't say, well, I'm going to sanctify this thing and that place. He sanctifies time itself. This is what he says. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Biblical history, says Wilson, is not the story of celebrating space, but the revelation of how people learn to sanctify moments, events, time. That it to sanctify means to set it apart for God. Thus, the essence of spirituality is for God's people to know the dynamic presence and quickening power of the Lord at work on earth in their daily lives and activities. After all, Jesus was a man. You know this. What was the incarnation about if it wasn't to reinforce the value, the centrality of our physical corporeal presence right here in the earth as men. And when Jesus was raised to life, he wasn't raised as a ghost or as a spirit. He was raised as a man so that Thomas could put his fingers into his hands and into his side and he ate fish with his disciples down on the beach while he had you know, already cooking for them. Because he was a real human being. That's what the incarnation means. It means the sanctification of our time in history. God is in the details. We have an expression in England. I don't know how often it's used here. I've been here 10 years, but I've not heard it very often. The devil's in the details. That's not the Christian view. The Christian view is that God is in all the details. If you doubt that, read Leviticus. Not your favorite book for devotions, I know. It ought to be. Get into it. Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Jesus quoted more from the book of Deuteronomy than any other book in Scripture. Leviticus is filled with seemingly endless repetition of details about curtains and gold and rings and decorations and trumpets and priests and sacrifices and so on. Look how much time God devotes to that. What, now we think because we're Christians and we're in Christ, our great high priest, that God's not concerned with the details anymore? St. Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, that is in the most main mundane aspects of your existence, do it all for the glory of God. There is no artificial division between secular and sacred. And we are accustomed as Christians in our time to think of spirituality as heavenly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness. A modern pietism and quietism concerned with eternal verities of the inner life and soul, a beautific vision, not about laundry, raising children, education, law, gardening, culture making, business building, and so forth. We even let this creep into our terminology about what we're doing. We talk about spiritual retreats. Oh, where's that in the Bible? The spiritual retreat. How's that supposed to inspire men? Now, we know what we mean. We mean, okay, we're going to go away. We're going to set aside some time. That's fine. But it isn't a spiritual retreat as though we're getting really now down to the business of the Christian life. Because if that is so, you should all go and join a monastery and get yourself castrated while you're at it. We may as well be eunuchs. If that is 
the true goal of the Christian life. The normal condition of man in Scripture, unless he's specifically called to singleness, is marriage and work. And man is defined in Scripture by his work. He is made to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the whole of creation has been put under our feet. That is the calling of man to work in terms of the purposes and kingdom of God. That's why men often die when they take early retirement. Where's retirement in the Bible? Never mind, let's not go there. If you're retired, do something with your retirement. Do something with it. The church and young people need godly men as living examples. Man's calling is unchanged in this respect, and he's given a helpmeet in his wife to advance and further God's calling upon his life. This meant for our forefathers, true spirituality was recognizing the sanctity of all time, of every moment. That it belongs to God, I'm to serve God in it, I am His servant, I am His vice-regent. Though our world is fallen, Scripture tells us that Christ is reconciling all things to Himself, both in heaven and in earth, and I'm going to talk about that tomorrow morning what that means. And this was the faith, not only of the biblical writers, but many of our forefathers that we desperately need to recover for today. So the obvious question becomes, in light of the obvious scriptural opposition to dualism, which as we can separate all these things out into tidy little boxes, how has it gotten to this point where the Christian church in the West would largely espouse this kind of dualism. dualism. Where the Archbishop of Canterbury, yes, even the new one, is quite privately supportive of gay unions in the church. Where the bishops don't even bother to show up to the House of Lords to vote down a change in the law in Britain. Strip the robes from most of them. They've got no right to stand up in the garb of the church. Scripture says this, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, uh, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is the head, and He is actually before all things, and in Him all things hold together or consist. All things, visible and invisible, hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. You all know that's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Now, the scope of that statement is all-encompassing. Paul tells us that everything in heaven and earth, all laws, all entities, all authorities, all powers, that which you see and which you don't see, all things are created through Him and for Him. They consist by His Word and power, and in everything, in every aspect of created reality, Christ is to be preeminent. That's the Christian faith. What faith have you got? If it's different to what Paul's is, it isn't Christianity. <clears throat> Are you annoyed with me yet? This is the teaching of Scripture about the nature of our faith. 
by the cross and through his church, his body of which he's head, he's reconciling all things to himself. There isn't any secular sacred divide here. There's no philosophical dualism. It was the Greeks who thought that the body was a prison for the soul and the goal of life was to escape the material world because it was evil. Nowhere does the Bible say the material creation is evil. Christ is reconciling all things to Himself. And Paul challenges us then in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, for believers to recognize their status and delegated authority in Christ as those who are raised with Christ who sits in the seat of all authority at the right hand of God. And he then tells Christians to set their minds on things above, not of earth. Now, this is not the introduction of Greek dialectical thinking, Greek dualism. It is not a charge. When Paul talks about having our minds on things above, it's not a charge to be heavenly-minded and not concerned with life in the earth. It is not a reference to creation at all. It's to the thinking and pattern of an earthly or worldly mentality that defines life's ends and goals in terms of a non-Christian perspective. The unregenerate life, you see, is not one that is hid with Christ in God. Paul reminds us that we are to live as those who are in Christ. This Christ that we've just described in Colossians 1. And we are charged with demonstrating this reality by our obedience. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5 through 7. He says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul says, put off all that thinking and put on the new self, which is renewed by knowledge after the image of the Creator. Now, if when Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, he meant the physical or the material, he's advocating suicide. So clearly, when Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, set your minds upon heavenly things, he's not saying, don't think about this world and our calling here. On the contrary, he's saying it's how we think about it. It's as those who are hid in Jesus Christ. We put to death an earthly way of thinking, a rebellious way of thinking, a sinful way of thinking, and we put on the mind of Christ. So, These are the things I'm going to be talking about over the next couple of days. Finally, in these last few moments, I want to remind you that we do not live in an era in which we can be complacent about this issue and our calling as men. See, if you want, as I said at the beginning, if we want to understand what it means to be men of God in Jesus Christ, we have to understand the pattern and the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we don't, really, we're playing games. We live in a time when we have just emerged from a century of fascist terror, Marxist murder and madness, totalitarian regimes and slaughter on a scale that made all previous centuries look like Lord of the Flies. That's the century we just came out of. And now we're moving into a context where the one thing that was the mooring, the stability in the Western world, the church and the family, are under a vicious attack. As we face at the beginning of this century a scientific manipulative state, by that I mean a social planning institution where the modern state really claims to be your God and provider, the source of sovereignty, the source of law, the source of definition of truth, the redefining of all things, 
and he promises you cradle-to-grave security. He claims ownership of your children. We are living in a slave culture, essentially. It just, it's no longer private slavery, it's state slavery. You work for the state about half the year. If you add up your taxes. These are new things. If we don't know our history, we don't understand what the meaning of tax is, we don't understand the meaning of why these things were introduced and when. And we just accept the status quo. We live in a time of this manipulative social planning where man is going to be planned and predestined in terms of the will of man and his idea of himself. Where we have a vitriolic atheism growing, a burgeoning debt-ridden elitist bureaucracy, the specter of Islamization with their own vision of law and culture and their imperatives. And we must understand as men what the Word of God teaches if we would be faithful in a time of crisis and therefore a time of opportunity. Because a time of judgment and crisis is also an hour of opportunity. Winston Churchill, who looked at history and said, I do not see when he was asked why he was an optimist, he says, well, I don't see problems as crises. I see them as opportunities. And the church of Christ today has an opportunity to stand up for Christ, for His Word, and do something and be something significant. The moment has come when we have to believe as men what God has told us in His Word. We have to believe it, teach it, apply it, and accept what the Bible says about the identity of Jesus Christ. It says this in, Re- in Revelation 1.8. He's the Alpha and the Omega. That is the beginning and the end. Who is, who was, and who is to come. The Almighty. John says there, he says, that Christ Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the early church died for that belief, for the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. It wasn't just a religious claim, it was a political claim. Augustus Caesar pronounced the declaration in the first century, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved than the name of Caesar. Do you recognize that text? Peter stands up in Acts 4.12 and gives a rebuttal. Do you think when they heard that, they said to themselves, oh, this Christian faith, no threat, doesn't have any political implications? Scripture says he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Go read Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Be warned, he says, you rulers of the earth. This is not future tense in the book of Revelation. It's present tense. And it's all in St. John's opening greeting to the churches in Asia. He says, this Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. What is he to you? Your buddy? A king somewhere in heaven? A kind of St. Francis of Assisi figure? singing to doves on his shoulder? I mean, these are the images that young people are confused by today. Who is Jesus Christ? Not the Christ that made a whip and drove out the thieves out of the temple courts. The King Jesus who is now ruler over the kings of the earth, this same writer John says, The Apostle John says, has made us, us, kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Revelation 1, 6. So we are a royal priesthood. That is the power of the resurrection. That Christ Jesus has made us 
a kingly priesthood. A kingly priesthood was given, given to Adam, the first man from whom you are descended, in the garden. And he lost that priesthood and kingship by his rebellion against God. And this kingship has been reestablished through the second Adam, Paul says, Jesus Christ. He's the second Adam. So who is he? He's the prophet, priest, and king. And in Jesus Christ, St. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal or a kingly priesthood, a holy nation. Oh, I thought I was just Bob who works down at the, you know, Tim Hortons. We have to begin as men thinking about ourselves theologically, not pragmatically, not therapeutically, not in terms of the world's definitions. We begin with Scripture and the Word of God. And then we will start to act like men. The key to living and acting like a man is not reading endless books on maximized manhood. The key to living as a man is understanding who we are in Jesus Christ and believing it and living in terms of it. This isn't some psychological gospel stand in front of the mirror, powerful, happy, handsome, healthy, and all of that kind of baloney. This is believing the theological reality that Scripture teaches about who we are. We are called, like the first Adam, as a kingly priesthood, to work and serve under the scepter of the great high priest, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as the Puritans said, who built our nations in North America, to assert the crown rights of King Jesus everywhere as his vice regents. That's the Christian life. And you thought it was having 20 minutes of devotions every other day. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying if that's the end of our vision of the Christian life, we have totally missed it. This is not some vague theological idealism. We tend God's garden when we make known the gospel, when we uphold His law, when we serve His righteousness, when we bear His image, not just in evangelism, and our personal lives, but in every aspect of the socio-cultural and political sphere, every aspect of life, we tend the garden of God. This is God's earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What does that leave out? Psalm 24, verse 1. There isn't a square inch, there isn't an atom in the universe which doesn't belong to God. For many of our Christian forebears, the Christian calling was nation-building. Nation-building. You know, I, when I was in London last week, about two minutes left before we have a final prayer, there was a lady who was speaking at the conference I was speaking at, nearly 50 years old, had suffered with cancer, survived it, a lawyer director of an organization called Christian Concern. Formidable woman, impressive woman. Fighting in the courts. Fighting in the corridors of power. Fighting in parliament. Wherever she could get access. Defending Christians being arrested. Losing their jobs for wearing a cross. Preaching in the street. And so on. Little woman. Maybe five foot four. Five foot three. Cancer survivor, 50 years of age. Where are the men? She can't get them involved. You know, there was a fabulous minister from Scotland who was there preaching with me, speaking with me at this event. And he said publicly that very day on that Saturday, after she had uh, spoken on the Friday, He said, and he was talking about the culture, 
He said, I looked at that woman and I heard what she is doing and what she's involved with. And he said, I have to tell you, I was ashamed. I'm ashamed of myself. He says, there she is, doing our job. And what am I doing? Tending my tomatoes in air in northern Scotland. For too long in the West, we've left the work of the kingdom to women in the church. And we wonder why our kids, our teenagers, our 20-year-olds aren't in the churches. Nation-building was the calling of the early Christians, was the calling of the Reformers, was the calling of the Puritans, because God has not just created the world as an environment for His creatures, but as His sanctuary where He is enthroned. Go and read it, Psalm 132, verses 13 through 14. This world is God's creation. It's His sanctuary. We're to tend it. We are to work it for His glory. And that's what it means to be a man. That's the meaning of manhood. We maintain the sanctity of His sanctuary. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a reflection of Eden, of the original creation, where human beings ruled and served as kings and priests, and the tabernacle was a copy of it. And we are to extend that garden to increase, fill, subdue, rule. There were, in fact, three land grants given in Scripture. The first land grant was Eden. And we lost it because we sinned and rebelled against God and we were thrown out of paradise. The second land grant in the Bible is Canaan. Abraham's called out and he's told, you and your descendants, if you obey me and serve me, I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance. What did they do? God warned them. He says, if you behave like the Canaanites, the land's going to spew you out just as it spewed them out. And they're taken off into captivity and so on and so forth until Jesus tells them, your house is left to you desolate. Not one stone shall be left upon another. And Titus surrounds the temple in AD 70 and destroys it. But there's a third land grant in Scripture. It's there in Romans 4 and it's there in Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth. In fact, Paul says in Romans 4, the cosmos, we're not fighting for a strip of land in the desert anymore. The earth is the Lord's and everything and the fullness thereof. And we have a priestly duty as we minister in the world as men of God and serve His purposes in all creation. St. Paul's actually said that his own mission his priestly duty, he says, regarding his life's work, he says, is to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. And we can, brothers, win back our age by faithfulness if we apply God's covenant word to every aspect of our lives and say with the early church, with our forefathers, Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.